one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about vote leave spending. We grapple with sound difficulties... And we ask whether there's any truth in the accusation that the anti-Semitism row is a smear. And we discuss dodgy leaflets in Havering. So this week and also last week's big political story, I guess, are the ongoing revelations about the activity or the alleged activities of Cambridge Analytica in the referendum campaign. Chris Wiley, one of the people who helped build the software said in his common select committee appearance that he believed and given the decisive margin the yeah, the narrow margin then cheating in his words on the part of the leave campaigns had been uh, vital to the result yeah so i think that's obviously the kind of biggest uh, ongoing political story and it has a lot of facets so yeah it does and i love you know lots of people like to talk about the machinations of these shady data companies but what people really care about this story is they want to believe that the eu referendum result is illegitimate isn't that that's why people are interested in it there is a privacy argument and we don't know whether or not aggregate iq which is the company that's implicated in this vote leave scandal that has links to cambridge analytica has done what the whistleblowers accuse it of doing but the big question is for people, particularly those on the Remain side of things, is whether or not these activities and the alleged overspending of the Vote Leave campaign meant that the result was ill-gotten. And that's why people care. That's, that's what I think. Yeah, I think it's one of those stories where there are, there are three undercurrents to it, two which I think are legitimate. Uh, one which you correctly identified as which I think is illegitimate, which is there is a group of people, and I say this as someone who is, you know, one too many bottles of red wine or whatever from launching my own centrist party late <laughs> at night to stop Brexit, who do basically seem to think that Brexit is something, and if they are like sufficiently angrily middle class about it, eventually their lawyers will fix it. You know, like it's kind of like, oh, it's a, a minor speed bump which we can somehow like sue our way out of. Yeah. Um and and there is a group of people for whom that is the attraction of this story. Then there are the serious allegations. You know, someone on Twitter put it well they said they were like, I don't they said, I don't think that Cambridge Analytica are anywhere near as influential as they have pretended to be and are now claiming not to be. However, if you if you break the law, right, if you say, oh yeah, we can procure a honey trap 
as they were caught on camera saying in the Channel 4 series, then you deserve to be investigated, right? Like, ultimately, if there are many reasons I would be unable to pull off a bank heist. But if I tried to pull off a bank heist, then I I ought to be um, held. And I think, yeah, that's sort of a legitimate yeah. uh, one. And then there's the kind of broader sort of, I know I said there were two legitimate ones, but there's a broader one which I would say is semi-legitimate, which is about the ways that the Leave campaign tried to uh, maximise the effectiveness of money to get around rules about how the referendum campaign worked. And the reason why I say that is semi-legitimate is that does, in my view, expose these serious problems with UK election law. However, I simply am yet to see a persuasive case that there was not cheating, that there was not sufficient cheating on both sides to make it moot, right? It's a bit like, yeah, it was a two-one victory, but if the remain, if if one of your, if the goal you scored in the the one goal you scored was offside, and their winning goal was from a dodgy penalty, well, ultimately you still lost by one legitimate goal. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and really, you know, if it does turn out to be true, if the allegations are from um, this activist called Shamir Sani, who claims that vote leave were exceeding the spending limit of seven million pounds that they had if it does turn out to be true what what they were doing or what they are accused of doing is is giving extra money to a separate campaign organization called believe but telling them how to spend it then you know that would be breaking our election spending law but how different morally would it be from the remain campaign having other resources of funding not least you know the government being on their side and the two main political parties they were campaigning for the remain um, they had the money, and those didn't count towards the official Remain campaign spending limit. Yeah, I mean, this is ultimately, I think any conversation about referendum spending does have to acknowledge. I mean, I think the £9 million leaflet that the government sent was entirely count, uh, counterproductive. I mean, it wasn't obviously the worst mistake that George Osborne and David Cameron made was not treating the 2016 budget as a pre election one. But um, and one of a series of catastrophic mistakes made by Cameron Osborne mm, in that referendum definitely. campaign. Definitely, yeah. However, that doesn't... It's one of those things where, like, like, again, there are two separate issues here, and I think you're completely right to separate the morality from the legality, right? Morally, there is no difference between, you know, if I'm a, a, a wealthy uh, pro-Remainer, sadly only one of those facts is true, um, and I decide to give... One million pounds to the Lib Dems, which I earmark for them to only use for the referendum. One million to Labour, which I earmark for them to only use for referendum. And then one million to the Remain campaign. And there are donors who did this. I've acted within the law. However, in terms of what election spending limits are meant to prevent, I cannot see an argument that that is not equally uh, problematic. I mean, not least because the Remain campaigns and the Leave campaigns did all coordinate, you know, they, they did all talk to one another and that was legally fine. Now, admittedly, if you break a, break a law, and this is probably a good uh, opportunity to widen it to the wider problems with UK election law. So, you know, so to take like the recent Conservative election spending campaign, basically all political parties who compete in multiple constituencies find ways to leverage their national spend into uh, their local spend and vice versa. It may be in the, the Conservatives did so in ways which broke the letter of the law. However, you simply cannot argue unless you are like, you know, a throthing partisan that the other parties have not found ways to break exactly. the spirit of the law. Which is why during or, or after the 2015 election, um, sort of local Conservative Party 
being accused of overspending and being investigated for it and then being fined for it. That's why you saw very little said on the Labour side. You know, you didn't have much Tory election fraud from from uh, Labour politicians because they know that they try and do very similar things in their constituencies. Um, I know that you were particularly interested in um, the way that Jeremy Corbyn used TV while he was campaigning before the 2017 election. So one of the really clever things they did uh, was a lot of their rallies were in very safe seats uh, which either bordered or shared an ITV or BBC uh, media region with marginal seats. Now, obviously, there are a couple of advantages of holding your rally in a safe seat, the first of which is, of course, that you are not touching your important local spend in your in your key battles. The second, of course, is if you are Jeremy Corbyn and you hold a rally in... Uh, I'm having a geography fail, so I'm just going to pretend that there's like an ultra-marginal seat next to Hackney where I live. This marginal of Swingington Central. Um, <laughs> ultimately, if you if you hold your, your rally in neighbouring Hackney, a bunch of happy people who want to see Corbyn will turn up. The photos and film will look great, but it will be transmitted to televisions in Swingington Central. And that is perfectly legal. I actually think that is morally different, whereas many of the things that the Labour Party does in terms of maximising its election spending are not. Um, but it is, it, A, is an example of something Labour did well that most people didn't notice, but also an example of, of a pattern of behaviour which exposes the big lie of our election campaigns, which is we do not have 650 campaigns. I know that every time I go on about people not having a personal vote, people start laughing. However, it is nonetheless true people's personal votes are derisory. So this, and the fact that we have an election law based around the idea that there are 650 unconnected races in which people go like, hmm, I wonder which one of my my doughty local representatives I'm going to send to Parliament <laughs> is, is, is ripe for abuse. We need, you know, a new election spending and, and hopefully also, you know, real electoral reform. Yeah, and the, and the difference between national and local spending is becoming increasingly arbitrary, isn't it? I mean, this Cambridge Analytica stuff has sparked a debate about how much what we see on Facebook and online can influence the way that we vote. And nowhere is this more obvious than in our election law, where you have all of the main parties and their non-official organisations that support them putting loads of stuff out on social media that, that is micro-targeted, obviously, to individual well, constituencies, so which comes into the national spend, or doesn't even go into that because it's by momentum, which doesn't have to account its national spend under the Labour Party. It has a separate... Cap. Yeah, this is the hilarious thing with Facebook is if I am a political party and I decide and I want my Facebook ads to only be seen by people in the West Midlands, an area that's full of marginals, that is national spend only by the most con yeah, like exactly. tenditious of uh, of means. And yeah, it, it's an, it is a nonsense uh, idea. Um, you know, people just do not and have never consumed news in, in that way. I mean, I think it is obviously true that adverts change people's minds, right? That's why people spend so much money on them. That's why if you're a, a good advertiser, uh, you know, you can earn so much money, right? Mm. However, the thing I... some One of the things I found slightly weird about some of the coverage of uh, the Cambridge Analytica adverts they've made is this weird way you'd see an advert and you're just like, yeah, but... But that appear, you know, something that bitterly partisan appears on the pages of any of our tabloids... Uh, you know, any of the alt left blogs, you know, any, mm. but you know, it's this slight weirdness. And like, if you, if you say something untrue in a right wing tabloid and it's been around for a hundred years, you're a respectable member of the political establishment. <laughs> yeah. If you say something flatly untrue on like a rando left wing blog and it's been around for three years, you are deeply pernicious. Now, I think they're both deeply pernicious, but this weird idea in like, well, because this one is new, it's bad, whereas this has been bad for a hundred years. So it's 
part of the fabric of public life or some nonsense. I do think there are probably accountability problems. Yeah, definitely. I was speaking to the Electoral Commission earlier this week um, for a piece that I was writing, and they were saying that they've asked Parliament to update the election spending rules to make sure that there are imprints on adverts that go out online, videos, you know, tweeted pledge cards that say where they're from, whether they're from an official party or whether they're from another non-party campaign organisation. Because at the moment we have this weird situation where you can get leaflets through your door and they've got all that sort of small print at the bottom saying this was printed on you know in room 72 of the this conservative local association whereas online everything you see that's political they don't there's no requirement for them to put any imprint on it so that makes it I think that is bad and that should change because it it makes things misleading for voters it can be confusing and like you say unaccountable yeah I also think one of the problems with the kind of gradual decline of kind of the shared public sphere where we all consume news together Mm. which I mean thanks to the fact that radio is still incredibly popular is not as marked as you would necessarily think but I mean I I have a number of of, of friends who are conservative who did not vote for uh, Zach Goldsmith in 2016 because they did not like the campaign that he ran Uh, they had been planning to vote for Zach Goldsmith at the start of the campaign. Now, it's very easy to see how in 10 years' time, everyone watches TV on demand, everyone exists in a social media bubble that is curated to keep them there and to keep them happy. You have, I'm Zach Goldsmith, I hump trees in (laughs) in those friends of mine's Facebook. And then you have, I'm Zach Goldsmith. No, and then you have, even with an imprint, you then have Sadiq Khan is a scary jihadi who's Mm going to sell your gold or steal your gold. He was going to do something creepy to to people's gold. Um, And then imprint paid for by Zach Goldsmith. Now, if the first group, if the people who the tree advert is targeted are are never in a position to see or know that the scary jihadi advert exists, that I think does have problems for political accountability. Yeah. Uh, but the weird thing is, is that is the bit that Vote Leave did very well that wasn't illegal. They did an awful lot of like, you know, have your liberal Brexit, have your protectionist Brexit. You know, if you don't like those Brexits, don't worry, those are other Brexits. Bre- yeah. yeah. And it's difficult to see how you can prevent that without running into quite serious freedom of expression worries. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! And Anoush, you have a question from when you were covering the protests about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party on Monday. Yes, I had a tweeted question saying, is there any truth in the argument that these accusations are a smear? So uh, my short and immediate answer is no, because there are real incidences of virulent and unacceptable anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And the Labour Party has been sluggish about dealing with them, to put it mildly. In fact, I think sluggish is is too kind. The Labour Party has been, you know, just utterly abject at dealing with anti-Semitism in its ranks. However, it is nonetheless true to say that there is a large group of people who do not give a flying one about the issue, who are willing to talk about the issue because they don't like the Labour Party. However, 
I just think, I mean, one, that is not true of the majority of people who are raising the issue. But actually, if you say something and five people say they're offended and one person is someone who's genuinely upset about it, who's from that minority group, and the other four are just people who don't like you and want you to have a hard time, well, the four people do not give you a license to ignore the yeah. concerns of the fifth. And actually, in this case, the, the margin is completely the other way, the other way right? Yeah, exactly. I do often find that argument. Well, some people are doing it for political purposes. Well, of course they are. This is politics. It's sort of in- irrelevant in a way because there are people who are genuinely upset about it and offended by it. And if Jewish community leaders, you know, are sort of having to start these these in- extraordinary sort of uh, rallies outside Parliament, you know, I was speaking to one person who was eighteen, a, stu- a student who was Jewish, who was saying this is my first ever political protest I've been to. He really looked devastated that he had to be standing outside Parliament in 2018 with a banner saying, stop denying the Holocaust. I mean, it is extraordinary. And what really, really made me think about this smear question was the small counter-protest at the uh, anti-Semitism rally in Parliament Square. Lots of them, you know, are Jewish themselves, and I did interview them, and I listened to, to what they had to say and read their banners. And what they were saying was, you know, this is timed just before the local elections to undermine Jeremy Corbyn by people in the Labour Party who just don't want him to be their leader. And what really surprised me was that actually Jeremy Corbyn had put out a statement just a couple of hours before saying that he is admitting that the party had been too slow to address the anti-Semitic comments and smears and tropes that had been issued by people in the Labour Party and they hadn't expelled them quick enough. And, you know, he he did give that apology. So he was admitting that this issue is real, whereas the people out sort of batting for him at this campaign weren't. And, And that really made me think, okay, people have slightly lost the reality of the situation here. Yeah. It is also true, and I say this as, you know, an outside but long time observer of the Labour Party, it is also true to say that anti-Semitism has been a problem in the Labour Party for a long time since before the yeah. 12th of September 2015. However, it is also true that it has been a problem that has, you know, not in- exclusively concentrated in all p- factions of Labour, but has been given particular house room in the part of the Labour Party from which Jeremy Corbyn emanates. <laughs> However, and, you know, actually this is something in some of the people who've been very critical of Corbyn, you know, some MPs who've been very critical of Corbyn over anti-Semitism privately will say, oh, I think I shouldn't have turned a blind eye to this when, you know, there were things about the Labour Party I didn't, you know, mm. it's easier to go, come on, you need to tackle this when it's a leader you're not sympathetic to than it was, you know, like ultimately, like no one in, no one in a leadership position in the Labour Party saw fit to tackle the fact that Jeremy Corbyn commented under a defense of like a racist mural going i don't see the problem here as it happens i believe corbyn's uh, second statement than he just didn't look and dashed off a response i think that actually is that is actually the real problem that the labor left has is that it basically regards anti-sensitivism as something which happens from outside the walls of the labor party yeah when it happens it's like a weird aberration and it doesn't need to be on on the lookout for it but ultimately right that mural was defended by Jeremy Corbyn under the previous Labour leadership and the then Labour leadership did nothing about it. Yeah. And that, and you can find example and example after uh, under under previous Labour leaders. But yeah, it basically say, ultimately that is secondary to the fact that it is a problem and it should be tackled. It is however true, and we will discuss, uh, I think in the next section, of course, that there are things in uh, the other the other party, as it were, that, are also not tackled and unlike this 
aren't even addressed publicly by a minority of their own MPs. Gosh, I really, this is kind of a depressing week because it's been a week with two racism scandals in our, our major political parties, the second of which is a leaflet uh, by the Havering Conservatives. Could you talk us through this leaflet, please? Yeah, so with the local election campaigns kicking off last week, this leaflet started to emerge on social media, as we were discussing in the previous section. No leaflet's a secret anymore. And it's uh, from the Havering, from the Romford Conservatives Local Association. Um, it was distributed around Havering, and it's a newsletter, and it uses very sort of what I would call dog whistle, racially charged sort of implied language. So it says we don't want Havering to turn into Hackney, Newham and other areas of East London, which have large non-white populations. And it says that Union Jacks would be pulled down if if, if the Labour, if the Labour oh, Party is voted in during the, the local elections. And then um, it, it, it warns Haringey residents that they will be ruled under Mayor Khan. <laughs> which uh, was a particular favourite of mine because he is already in charge of London. So Mayor Khan rules, yeah. <laughs> rules large. It's like bad news, guys. <laughs> yeah. London has fallen. This, yeah, this was an explicitly, I mean, it's like one of those who's just like, is this is this even signalling or is this just basically ex- an, an explicitly uh, inflammatory? And it's not the first time uh, that um, Conservative MPs have participated in campaigning against Sadiq Khan that has been uh, of this nature. Uh, Nadine Doris uh, recently tweeted something like, um, why is Sadiq Khan focusing on either housing or transport? He should be focusing on um, grooming in Telford. Now, um, you did a very good interview uh, with someone who prosecutes grooming cases. They are undoubtedly very serious. However, Sadiq Khan is not politically involved in Telford, uh, Ultimately, you can make a, I think, quite strong argument that the mayor should have greater powers over policing than they have. But you literally can't. There is not a non-dog whistle reason for that tweet. No, exactly. Uh, you know why sent. she sent that tweet? It's because um, he's a Muslim of Pakistani. Yeah, like you know, conservative MPs have shared you know Britain first memes about knife crime in the capital and Sadiq Khan. Knife crime in the capital is going up. However, is going up less than the national average, uh, and it you know has quite a lot to do with you know cuts in policing and. Many other things, which are again not the control, not within the control of of the mayor of London. Um, and the interesting thing is, inspired so inspired by two people: the Conservative peer Andrew Cooper, who very publicly condemned uh, both of these things, and Sundar Katwala, head of the think tank British Future, which is about the fact that you know as as Britain changes, we will become more diverse, and what that means for politics. Sundar Katwala said, you know, and I thought it was a really interesting idea. He said what he'd like to do is to have to keep track of which MPs do the following. One, MPs who only ever talk about racism on their own side. Mm-hmm. So they only use it as a stick to beat their party leadership with. Two, MPs who only ever talk about racism on the other side. And three, MPs who only ever talk about racism in order to defend their own party from accusations of racism. One of the things I'm glad that we have done this week is we have not discussed havering in reference to Labour's anti-Semitism problem mm. and we not because ultimately it felt this week and a lot of parties seem to think that racism is like first past the post where it's like oh but we're I have literally seen people <laughs> arguing oh Labour has an anti-Semitism problem but you know it's it's not as bad or it's only as bad as the Conservatives 
um, Muslim problem. It's just like, guys, this is not a competition. Yeah, they're both problems, yeah, and just... that's the problem. Um, Nick Bowles, the Tory MP and former minister, he tweeted about the Havering leaflet, saying that it was, you know, um, disgraceful. And then at the end of his tweet, he said, how can we expect to sort of attack Labour on anti-Semitism when we have this in our own party? It was a bit like... There's nothing. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's like, nothing to do with I it. Mean, maybe, maybe oppose both. Sides. It's one of those things where also it's just like it's like it, it is true that you can't with a straight face say this prejudice is bad yeah. while engaging in it in your own house. However, that's not the yeah. like the reason not to do it is not because your attack line will fall flat. The, the interesting thing is, so I, I inspired by um, Sunder's question, I started doing uh, myself, and you've slightly stolen my punchline, which is right. it turns out there is literally one conservative MP. I was going to invite listeners to guess, but I guess particularly stupid listeners could still try and guess. The one MP who has, in the Conservative side, who has criticised both his party and another party publicly for uh, racist campaigning is Nick Bowles. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, basically, every Labour MP with a significant social media uh, um, platform, so I'm discounting the ones who only tweet things like, thrilled to open my local... <laughs> Cabbage factory in in <laughs> Margington South. Um, all of the ones who have a more significant social media platform than that have uh, condemned Zach Goldsmith. Obviously, most of those MPs have not condemned the moat in their own eye, aka Labour's anti-Semitism problem. Yeah. However, no MP who has uh, condemned uh, Labour for anti-Semitism has not also condemned Zach Goldsmith's campaign. However. I believe I am right, and I haven't voted. Uh, John Speller is the only one who has not condemned anyone for subsequent campaigning against Sadiq Khan. So, I mean... Right, okay. And I do think it reveals an interesting cultural difference uh, between the two parties, because there are many Conservative MPs who believe Zach Goldsmith's campaign was out of line. However, well, only one of them has seen fit to say anything about it. And ultimately, these two things shouldn't be compared or weighed against each other because they are both bad and both parties need to fix them. And that is, you know, like, it really is irritating when people go like, oh, you know, we we wouldn't act the way that Labour does towards concerns in the Jewish community, towards concerns women have in political parties. It's like, I mean, we're literally right now finding out the extent to which we have, do and still are doing yeah. that. So perhaps we... Perhaps we should just acknowledge it's a problem and it should be tackled. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that the Conservatives being, you're right, they were silent throughout Zach Goldsmith's campaign. And then after he lost, a few people came out, but not, you know, not high profile, no, hardly any MPs, I don't think. Well, and, you know, Kemi Badnock yeah. uh, gave an interview with The Standard recently, which he went, oh, no, actually, like what he was really saying was that Sadiq Khan's judgment was faulty. It's like, oh, OK, yeah, sh sure. Yeah, I'm. I know, uh, they really haven't... haven't and, and actually, this isn't to their advantage because they do have... Well, I mean, I interviewed Saeed Avasi, a Tory peer who used to be in government last year, and she'd brought brought out a book which has some really interesting things about um, how the sort of Tory high command saw courting Muslim voters when she was in those when she was in those conversations. And really, she was saying, and it's her it's her accusation that they kind of they've calculated that they didn't really need the Muslim vote. So they were going to try and maximise the vote of other communities, um, other ethnic minority communities, seeing them as sort of a future 
um, potential sort of part of their voter base. Um, and so what she said was that Theresa May had sort of lost Muslim voters by carrying on this complacent attitude towards them. And you can see that happening in the Zach Goldsmith campaign and with leaflets like the Havering one, which wasn't explicitly about, about Muslims, but it was about uh, areas with high Asian Muslim communities. Yeah, and I think actually the the problem is it's the slight, yeah, the, one of the many tragedies of Labour's uh, anti-Semitism problem is that ultimately the electoral damage they will suffer from it, they can walk off. Yeah. Uh, however, the electoral damage that the Conservatives' uh, race problem has does place a semi-permanent block on how you can see them getting a decent-ish parliamentary majority ever again. So it's actually more acute, obviously, whether or not your problem is electorally relevant is not really the issue here. Yeah. Um, but it does make it even more interesting that they don't talk about it. Exactly. Because one of the reasons why Parliament's become a lot more women-friendly is Tory and Labour women work together all the time on those issues. Fascinatingly, despite the fact we have more ethnic minorities in Parliament than ever before, I think, that still doesn't seem to happen. Yeah, and, and that's precisely their problem. They won't talk about it, so then it will become an electoral problem for them. Not that that is... The, the, at the heart of the issue, but you'd think that that would be at least one motive. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil and is licensed under Creative Commons. We're sorry about some of the sound difficulties you may have experienced listening to this week's New Statesman podcast. We are working on a solution. Something that has been solved is the sign-up page for my free morning email. So if you haven't got on that yet, now's the time to start. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.